Tonight, I'm very pleased to welcome Robert Schalman. He's going to discuss his work as Conservation Program Manager at the Naval Weapons Station in Seal Beach. He has served as the Conservation Program Manager at the station since 2003, and he's responsible for overseeing the Natural Resources Program, including the management of several endangered, threatened, and at-risk species. He's a Long Beach native, born here, grew up here, when it went to St. Anthony's High School, has both his bachelor's and master's degree from Cal State Long Beach with specializations in marine biology and in environmental science. And he also has a certificate in environmental management from UC Irvine. With over 20 years of experience working in a broad spectrum of habitats, his primary passion is avian ecology and management. In addition to his work at the Naval Weapons Seal Beach Station, he's active in the National Military Fish and Wildlife Association, the Department of Defense Partners in Flight Program, Partners in Flight Western Working Group, the Ecological Society of America, and the Pacific Seabird Group. I think a lot of us forget how important these military installations are to providing safe havens for wildlife. And Bob will tell us about some of that this evening. Please join me in welcoming Bob Schalman. Well, good evening, everyone. Um, someone gave me some uh, really good advice. They said, you know, if you're nervous, just imagine that your audience is wearing underwear. I can't see you, so that's not much help right now. But uh, um, actually, before I start, um, I, did, I don't know if anybody saw in the papers what's going on up in Monterey talking about avian ecology, what's going on with the crows. Does anybody see all this? They're, they've had a whole die-off of all these crows on, the, on one of the highways up there. One of my friends is one of the biologists up there. And what they found out is that a lot of these crows are getting hit by vehicles, but they're getting, but they're in such bad shape that they actually figured out that what's hit, happening is they're getting hit by, by, by uh, semi-trucks. And so they called in a bunch of experts to try to figure out what the heck is going on here. And I don't know if any of you ever noticed crows when they're going down and picking up carrion on the, on the roads. There's usually one up in the, um, up in the trees kind of acting as a lookout. Well, it turns out they're really good at saying, caw, caw, but they can't say, truck, truck. <laughs> so, so. I'm sorry, I apologize to my son who's had to hear that 100 times, but, um, um, but I am here. Um, again, my name is Bob Shellman, and I'm the uh, Natural Resources Program Manager at Naval Weapons Station Seal Beach, just down the road. Um, what I'm gonna do tonight is talk a little bit about the Department of Defense's role in natural resources conservation and what seem to be two opposing missions and how do we meld those together. And so I'll talk a little bit about that and kind of how the Department of Defense manages those natural resources. And then I'll spend a little bit of time talking specifically about Seal Beach and what we're doing and how we're managing some of the endangered species and how they're doing. And then um, talk about some of the future challenges that, we've, that we're looking at and facing. And finally, we'll wrap up with some of the over the horizon things that we're looking at and trying to be, um, be cognizant of and, and, and make good strides towards solving. So again, this is a tale of two missions. So, this is the look that most people give me when I say I'm a military biologist. 
Now, there's all kinds of different versions of that, but basically they're, 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 the, the response is, what the heck is this? You said you're a military biologist. I don't get it. Um, uh, Major General Leonard had this quote, which I think is very appropriate, that a country worth defending is a country worth conserving. And he was a really dynamic uh, man. He, he was in charge of all of the Marine, Marine Corps installations in the, in, on the West Coast. And he definitely got it. And he understood that um, we can have these two missions work together. There's going to be challenges, and there's going to be times where we're going to get cross-threaded. But there are opportunities for both, to, um, both missions to advance together. So. so when we look at federal lands, you can see that federal lands are spread throughout, throughout the US, but they're predominantly in which part? Predominantly in the West. And if you can see the, the color code on the, on the bottom left, you can see that uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs and BLM dominates that, um, a lot of land in the, in the BLM. But the, um, the, the, the point of showing this is that um, the DOD, it's kind of hard to find the red spots. There's some, there's some big ones up there um, in Yuma, Yuma Proving Grounds and some of the big air ranges in Arizona and New Mexico. But um, the, the the actual footprint of military land is relatively small. Um, the thing to keep in mind when we talk about what is the mission of, uh, of the Department of Defense is that, and to keep in mind is that it's not a land management agency. The Department of Defense is not a land management agency. As you can imagine, the main purpose of, the, the per main mission of the Department of Defense is military readiness. So it's basically making sure that our soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines are prepared for whatever may come. So um, making sure that they have adequate training grounds, they can have wide open spaces to do these testings, whether it's munitions, whether it's land movements, whether it's tanks. When I first started working for the Navy, we have a detachment down in Fallbrook, and I had to go through Camp Pendleton. And it was kind of a shock to me as a civilian. I've never been in, I've never been in the military, but it was a shock to me to be driving along, and all of a sudden I had to yield to a tank crossing right in front of me. Uh, it's just a different, it's a different world. And I think it's paradoxical in most people's mind to think, well, wait a second, Department of Defense, you're talking about bombs, tanks, things like that. How, in that, how can that possibly be good for, uh, for wildlife? How can you have a natural resources mission that would dovetail with that? And the trick to, th the trick to that, which I'll talk about, is how do you manage, how do you manage that, um, the timing of when you do these things? Um, a lot of it is there's a lot of wide open buffer space when you're talking about airfields and munitions testing and so on like that. There's obviously big buffers, and those buffers um, are where a lot of that wildlife habitat can thrive. I like to show this this graph because it gives you an idea of what the Department of Defense and how valuable this Department of Defense land is. If you look on the leftmost bars, you can see the Department of Defense has a relatively small number of acres, roughly 25 million. The number ebbs and flows a little bit, but roughly 25 million acres of land. That's a lot of land. But when you compare it to the right, to the Bureau of Land Management, which is as uh, you know, order of magnitude more than that, nearly 250, a little over 250 million acres, you can see that it's a pretty small, pretty small amount, of land, uh, amount of land. But where the real value is, if you look at the bar behind that, is the number of endangered species, threatened and at-risk species that each of these agencies are responsible for. And so again, the DOD, again, roughly 25 to 30 million, it, it ebbs and flows depending on who controls the land. But in that, small amount of, in that small amount of space, relatively, 
there are over 350 listed species. When I talk about a listed species, I'm talking about threatened or endangered. And that doesn't even include the at-risk species, the ones that are kind of teetering on the brink of being uh, considered as threatened or endangered. So again, this is kind of a summary of what I'm talking about, is that we're talking about a relatively, again, relatively small portion of land, but a very high value. And we, what we find is that these um, installations become islands of, islands of diversity and, island, and they're kind of hot spots for these uh, endangered species. And um, so why is that? Why is it that we, what is it about these military lands that is different than these other, these other agencies? And what makes them quote unquote protected lands? Well, one thing is the regulations that the Department of Defense has. One of the things that we're mandated to do is to manage at an ecosystem level, kind of at a 20,000 foot level, if you will. And that means that we're not looking at a specific species or a specific habitat. We're looking at the big picture. Now, my official billet with the, with the Navy is I'm an ecologist, so it fits in really well with me. I tell people I'm a Navy biologist because people can relate to that a little bit more easily than an ecologist. But the regulations mandating that we manage at this, at this higher level to, man, to manage for all of the species and all of the habitats within our, within our ranges is what helps. The other thing that it does is if we look at how the land use is, is, has been used in the past and, and in the present. Now here locally, not as much, it's a little harder to see this, but in some of these larger tracts of land, a lot of times they were originally used for grazing, farming, and so on like that, and then when the military took them over, they've had a chance to recover. And sometimes we've, these military installations have been there for 40, 50, 60 years, and over that time, they've recovered to some of their original levels of being able to support uh, wildlife and habitat. And then, again, locations that we were talking about, now these become hotspots. If you take an aerial view of Southern California, there are two really big green spots in Orange County and, and Southern Orange County, Northern San Diego County. That's Naval Weapons Station Seal Beach and Camp Pendleton. And a lot of the rest of the area is completely, uh, has been encroached with suburbia and, and urban sprawl. So what that means is that all of those things all result in higher diversity than what, surround, than what surrounds us. So no, this is, not my, this is not my field office, although it might be, might, be, might be a dream of a field biologist to have that, although you can, uh, uh, you can imagine that yeah, I don't get good Wi-Fi there, so that probably wouldn't work too well. Um, so what I'm gonna do now is I wanna take it back to a local level and talk to you about what I do specifically day to day and who I work for. Um, I work at Naval Weapons Station Seal Beach, which is right down the road. Show of hands if you've been by or you know, know exact kind of where that is. Those of you who are watching online, raise your hands too. Okay, all right. Um, so <clears throat> what is it that we do? Well, for those of you who have driven by, you may have noticed the, one of our Navy ships um, at, at the wharf um, off of PCH. And our primary mission is that we load and unload those warships as they go to train, as they go to, as they go to war. And when they come back, if they have anything left over, they give it back to us and we store it. Now, as a kid growing up in the area, I had all kinds of great stories about what those big humps were in the, in the fields out uh, in Seal Beach. We had all kinds of great stories about silos that went underground and went offshore and they could launch missiles offshore and so on like that. So it was a little bit of a disappointment to me when I got hired to the Navy to find out that those mounds are basically just garages. They're just big garages that are covered with earth. And the other story that I had in my head and our friends all told was that they were covered with earth because that would keep the Russian spies from knowing where they were. 
while a Russian spy driving by would know exactly what they were. Um, the reason that they're covered with earth is, does anybody know? Anybody have any guess as to why they would be covered with earth? Climate, it's actually temperature. It actually keeps the temperature very stable inside those where they're storing those weapons. Um, you could have a wildfire that would go right over the top of them and it wouldn't change the temperature inside at all. So that's the reason they're earthen covered is to, is to maintain the temperature. Um, it's, it, the station itself was established in 1944. It's had several names, but now it's, its name right now is Naval Weapons Station Seal Beach. Um, and again, it's the primary munitions facility on the West Coast. We primarily service the San Diego fleet, but we can service other, uh, other nations on, as need, on an as-needed basis and other uh, portions of the Navy if that's needed as well. Um, one of the unique things, one of the, one of the many unique things about it is that it also is the home of a thousand acre national wildlife refuge that's overlaid right onto Navy property. And that's a pretty unique thing in the military that you have a national wildlife refuge that's it completely encompassed with, within the weapon station. And a lot of people wonder why that is. Why is there a wildlife refuge there? Because before there was a wildlife refuge, it was actually a Navy wildlife reserve. So this still had the same acronym. Anybody who's in the military, you know the military loves their acronym. So it still was an NWR, but it was a Navy Wildlife Reserve before it was a National Wildlife Refuge. Well, the reason that it became a National Wildlife Refuge is there was a plan in the 60s to um, put, uh, to extend the 605 freeway right through the middle of the marsh and connect it into PCH. And so the biologists um, and local conservation groups at the time went and, and enlisted the, the support of the Congress and basically said, we think this is a really bad idea. The commanding officer agreed that that was a bad idea to have a, have a major thoroughfare going right through his military operation. And so um, it went to Congress and eventually in 1972, Nixon signed it as a National Wildlife Refuge. And its primary purpose was to support two of the endangered species that I'll talk about in just a couple moments. The other thing that's really interesting, and you may have noticed if you've ever get been by, you might have seen a lot of tractors moving around. Um, there's over 2,000 acres of agricultural land that's, um, that's utilized in that open space. When you're storing anything, any kind of weapons like that, you want to have a lot of wide open spaces. Well, those wide open spaces are expensive to mow and maintain. So by having a farmer there to do that, the Navy saves about a half a million dollars annually by not having to mow and maintain that and, uh, for weed control and the, the lessees pay, pay monies into the government, so it helps offset those costs as well. So it's a win-win it's a for, the, for the farmer who gets great land, and it's also a win for the, for the Navy to actually save some money and make a little bit of money. <coughs> I, don't, I don't expect everybody to read all these little parts, but the take-home message for this slide is that I'm part of a bigger group. Um, there are about 17 people in the environmental program that I work with at, at Naval Weapons Station Seal Beach, and that includes not only at Seal Beach, but we have a detachment in Fallbrook, detachment in San Pedro at the uh, Defense Fuel Support Point, and one in, uh, in Norco. And there's a Naval Surface Warfare Center there in, in Norco. But we have everything from regulatory compliance for air, air monitoring, um, environmental planning, cultural resources, um, um, spill response, animal control, all of those things all fit into it. And I, I fit into a couple of those spots up at the top where we're talking about um, natural resources and conservation. So I'm part of a, big, part of a bigger team. Um, a little bit more detail about the wildlife refuge. As I said, it was, it was signed in 1972, as a, established as a, as a national wildlife refuge in 1972. And its primary goal was to recover 
the, two, the populations of the California least turn and the light-footed Ridgeways rail. Um, if I call it a clapper rail, it's because they recently changed the name, and for my entire life, I've been calling them light-footed clapper rails, and they just changed the name to Ridgeways rail, so if I slip up, just forgive me. That's something that's gonna take another 20 years for me to get used to. The other, the other goal that they have, which is their secondary goal, is to provide uh, public outreach as much as possible. And I have a few, um, if you're interested in coming to visit some of the um, uh, monthly tours, I have a few postcards for you. Make sure you come see me afterwards. I'll give you a postcard and you can sign up to get a tour of the National Wildlife Refuge. They do a, a tour once a month. So this is a great, great quote from Roger Torrey Peterson. And being a bird guy, I have to have as many bird, bird quotes and bird pictures as I can in my presentation. But what I'm gonna do for the next couple of minutes is talk a little bit about the endangered species management that we do on the base and some of the, some of the species and kind of how they're doing. <clears throat> the four endangered species that I, that I deal with uh, the most are again the Ridgeways rail and the tern, which I talked about, but we also have green sea turtles, western snowy plover, and the, state, the one state-listed species we have is the building savanna sparrow. So I'll talk real briefly about each of those. California least tern, uh, federally endangered, endangered birds is the smallest, um, this group of terns is the smallest group of terns in the world as far as their size, not the smallest group ever, but they are small, they're diminutive birds is the best way to put it. Um, <clears throat> they are not year-round residents, they come in, um, they usually arrive at tax day, no joke, April 15th, if I go out there, chances are really good, I'm gonna see a least tern flying around, um, there and abouts they show up, they, they mate, lay their eggs, raise their young, and then they skedaddle back south. One of the interesting things is we don't know how far south they go. We don't exactly know where they go. They're so small, you can't put a transmitter or a tag on them um, that's real reliable. We have so we're, there's some research going on right now with some really tiny uh, loggers that, we're, that we can attach to the adults, and then the trick is you gotta get that exact same adult back and get the logger off of it and hopefully read the data. And we're in the process, we, that's the royal we, scientists are in the process of trying to uh, figure out where exactly these suckers go when they leave, they leave Southern California. <clears throat> um, they nest on the installation on a little tiny, uh, a, a little tiny three-acre site could we call NASA Island. It was where they actually tested firefighting foams back in the, during the Apollo uh, mission era. And then once they were done testing these firefighting foams and develop, um, they cleaned it up, covered it with sand, and lo and behold, the terns figured this out and decided this was a cool place for them, for them to hang out. Um, I can update that in 2016, we fledged 35 terns this year. We had a better year. Uh, one of the primary challenges that we have with this colony and with this species is that corvids, crows and ravens, are actually really good egg hunters. And so we have a challenge keeping the, them from eating the eggs. And then um, ju juvenile birds, like the one pictured here, are not very strong flyers and they make good targets for things like peregrine falcons and so on like that. Now as an ecologist, I take a big picture approach and I say, okay, peregrine falcons gotta make a living too, owls gotta make a living too, these things that potentially could eat these things. And I, but I would prefer that they didn't eat my endangered birds. I'd rather they, they ate something else. So we do what we can to haze the, haze the other predators around, but inevitably there's going to be some that are gonna be lost to these predators, but that's the way it's been even before they were endangered. The main reason that this bird is in, in, on the endangered species list is because it's a sandy beach nester and people like to go to the beach. And so when they are running to the water and they see that cool water and their feet are burning, they're not paying attention to where they're stepping and they could be potentially stepping on eggs and chicks of these, of these species. So that's why they are on the endangered species list in the first place. But they're doing, they're doing 
doing better. Um, uh, the seasons tend to ebb and flow depending on the predator load, but this last year and this year were both good years. All right, light-footed ridgeways are cut off on a little bit on the bottom there, but that's a federally endangered, endangered bird. Um, I tell kids, when I teach kids, I tell them this is a long-nosed chicken. Um, it's, about the, it's about that size, that long, that long, long nose. Um, um, they're very secretive birds, unless you go to Bolsa Chica Ecological Reserve, where they don't seem to know that they're supposed to be secretive birds and they just wander around under the boardwalk. So if you want to see one, the best place to go is bo go to Bolsa Chica and, and walk up and down the boardwalk. And chances are better than average that you'll see one of these birds. At Seal Beach, however, they act the way that they're supposed to. They're very secretive. We hardly ever see them. In fact, the way that we um, that we know what they're doing is by doing call counts. We go out and listen to them. They all, they, their name, their clap, their, their original name, Clapper Rail, came from their clapping call that they would make at dusk. And that's kind of their announcement of their territory. Let, let all their neighbors know where they are. Um, one of the biggest challenge that we have here is at, at Seal Beach is that the marsh is somewhat stunted. The, the grasses that they weave their nest out of, which are meant to rise and, rise and fall with the tide, they tend to get flooded out because we don't have good freshwater flow that comes in, so our cord grass is not as tall and as robust as it could be with freshwater flow. So what we've done is we've artificially given them some place to live. And so we have about 100 of these uh, floating platforms, and this is a, a prototype, so this isn't an actual one, but the idea is there. And so what we do is we attach these to the floor of the marsh, and then these rise and fall with the tide. And so the, the rails can go in here, and they can hide out during high tide, and they can raise their young and, uh, and, and, and do just fine with that. Unfortunately, they tend to like to sit on top and sun themselves, which makes them very vulnerable to predators. So sometimes it's just like, you do the best you can, but uh, you know. Um, but we do, have, we, do, we do have folks that go out there and, and muck, around in the, muck around in the mud and, and, and keep track of these guys. Um, our census um, in 2016, and again this year, was estimated about, about 60 pairs. The, the final numbers aren't in yet for this year, but I, it feels like they're doing, they're doing well. In fact, they feel like they might be expanding a little bit. Some of our cord grass um, habitat, which they prefer, is starting to expand a little bit, so I think we're starting to see a few more. Um, the other way that I, I have an inkling that there's more is they used to not call as much. And again, I told you that the calls are territorial. And I think the reason they didn't call is we didn't have a good threshold of birds. Uh, but now that I think that there's more birds, they tend to be kind of like trying to show off and making sure that, hey, I know that Johnny's over there and Fred's over there and you know I know where everybody is. And so they tend to call a little bit more when they're kind of feeling like they're getting um, encroached upon a little bit. So our call, our call data seems to show that maybe those numbers are coming up a bit. Again, the building savannah sparrow, this is our state endangered bird. If you're going to see an endangered bird at Seal Beach, this will be the one you're going to see. You pretty much can't jump out of an airplane with a parachute and come down and land anywhere near the marsh without landing on one of these because they're everywhere. So why in the heck are they endangered? Anybody have any guesses? Why would they be endangered? You're right, it's the habitat. They don't have the right habitat anywhere else. We've got the habitat they like. They like the pickleweed marsh, which we have, we have in abundance um, in, our, in our salt marsh, um, but there's only about 1% of the overall salt marsh that there used to be in from Ventura all the way down to the Mexican border. There's only 1% left. So it's like trying to make a living on 1% of anything. It's hard to do. So because we have the right habitat, we have these birds and spades, but um, 
we're one of a one of very few sites that does does have that that number. And the the great thing is they have very similar habitat requirements and needs as the Ridgeways Rail, so they get kind of protection by proxy. Um, they are a year-round resident, so when I have a, any uh, a new commanding officer or something that wants to go out and see an endangered species, or if I'm taking them on a tour, this is one I can show them pretty much pretty much any time of the year. Um, the uh, the only population that's larger than ours is uh, at the Navy Base Ventura County, and they just happen to have a bigger marsh than I do. Otherwise, I'd have the biggest population. Darn it. So, um, <clears throat> but yeah, again, they they're doing very well because we have the right habitat. There we go. Western snowy plover, we have these occasionally. This is a bird that um, suffers the same challenges that the least tern does in that it's a beach nester. Um, they, um, they tend to nest right along or just above the rack line on a beach. And so groomed beaches, which is what, which is what people like, they don't like to have to step through the seaweed on their way to the water. So the municipalities clean up all that rack. Well, that holds a lot of the food that these plovers would normally be eating. So we have a couple of beaches that are just off limits to the public, so we don't clean up the rack line, and the, the birds take advantage of that. Although it's a relatively small beach, we don't, we don't see nesting very often. We do see them in the wintertime, and occasionally, uh, I just saw one last week that um, had bands on it. It looks like it was banded just down the road at Bolsa Chica. So um, these are birds that are, that are around, but we, it's not something that we... Uh, have a real active program to, to recover because we don't really have the habitat to do that. Um, I think I talked about most of that, although their chicks are very, very cute. I wish we did have, have more breeders, but they are, they are very cool. Um, <clears throat> little cotton balls with legs. All right, and then finally, the green sea turtle. This is a relatively um, new species for us to uh, work with, um, and it may just be that we didn't know that we had it as for years. When I was a kid growing up and I rode along the San Gabriel River on my bike, we would occasionally see turtles in the San Gabriel River and we'd say, oh, that's cool. And the prevailing thought at the time was that they were there because of the warm water effluent from the power plants, but that they were just there, you know, in the wintertime they were there because the water was still warm and we didn't really give it a whole heck of a lot of thought. Well, then we were doing some stingray research way back in the backwaters of the, uh, of the wildlife refuge area and one of the stingray researchers came in and said, hey, you know you have sea turtles back there, right? And we're like, you do? And sure enough, we went out there and we have a pretty, pretty good population of them. So now the question was, is this the same group of turtles that's in the San Gabriel River or, or are these different ones? And so some researchers from Cal State Long Beach, my alma mater, came out and they attached transmitters to them. And lo and behold, they're, they're just going back and forth from San Gabriel River and back into the into these areas where they can feed and just there's sheltered water, it's nice and warm. Uh, there's plenty of eelgrass for them to eat. And then when they're ready to breed, they're part of the population, the breeding population that's associated with Mexico. So at some point when they get the urge to go breed, they're gonna more than likely head south because we don't have the beaches that would support nesting here. But it is a it is a species that we keep tallies on. The main thing that we do to conserve it is we have a couple box culverts that they swim through in order to get to these areas. So we need to make sure that those box culverts stay free and clear of any marine fouling because we don't want to get a turtle obviously stuck in one of those. So um, it's a species that we are continuing to study and, and uh, learn more about. And we're, we have a real good partnership with, uh, again, with the folks that are doing the research at Cal State Long Beach and then also with the National Marine Fisheries Service helping to, um, to do um, cap, you know, capturing and tagging these individuals and occasionally putting these um, 
uh, loggers on them. Um, species of concern, species at risk. Um, burrowing owls. This, this is unfortunately this is not a this is not a happy story right now. Um, although it could be at some point. Um, burrowing owls. We uh, Naval Weapons Station Seal Beach had the last existing nesting pairs of burrowing owls on the coast. Um, everywhere from anywhere from Santa Barbara all the way down to the Mexican border. We were the last ones. And what's happened is there's no source population. They're not they're not being backfilled because there's nothing else. There's nothing to fill in. So when we lose a single one of these animals, it's devastating because we there's nothing to there's nothing to fill that void. And right now I can tell you that the population stands at one. We have one female left um, and that's not conducive to um, um, increasing their numbers. Um, our hope every year is we have a number of wintering owls that come in, and our hope is that we have good habitat, we have good forage. Our hope is that some of those owls will stick around. Um, it's not impossible. We a few years ago, probably five years ago, we had a pair of owls that came out of nowhere. We, they were not banded. We didn't know who they were. They were unknown owls to us. They came down. They raised chicks. They had five chicks. The only reason I know about them is that um, our farmer was out working the fields and. He called me and said, I'm, I've got owls flying all around me. And these young owls were flying around and, and foraging right behind the tractor as he was, as he was working. So um, I'm hoping that's, that's a species that we can, we can turn around because we certainly have the habitat. We certainly have the, the forage for them. But um, the, the population, especially the coastal population, is not doing well throughout its range. So um, there you go. All right. So. The take-home message from this slide, other than that's a beautiful shot of a hummingbird, is um, that we need to look ahead and try to figure out and see what are our challenges over the horizon. What are over the over the you know what what's what's over the horizon that we can't quite see yet? And one of the ways that we do that is with some of our port partner organizations. Jerry mentioned a couple of them. Um, every military installation around the world that has natural resources has at least one person like me, they have a biologist. And that shocks a lot of people. Most people have that, like that first slide, oh, that picture. That's what a lot of people are surprised to find out that there's such a large number of biologists that work for the military. It's not something that I ever knew going to school that, hey, I could have a career as a biologist or an ecologist at, at the, at, with the military. But <clears throat> um, I work real closely with a number of these biologists. Um, um, at the National Military Fish and Wildlife Association, that's all the agencies coming together, all the biologists coming together and, and having annual meetings. Because one of the things that we found is that a lot of the challenges that we have, um, especially that are military related as far as timing and how do we deal with things like bird aircraft strikes and things like that, somebody's already thought of a lot of these solutions. So why keep reinventing the wheel? So we come together and try to work together to, to share those stories and share what's working, what isn't working. Um, the other programs that I work a lot with are these Partners in Flight and Partners in Amphibian and Reptile Conservation Programs. And the Partners in Flight program is especially near and dear to my heart because one of the things that we can do a lot of really good conservation work at these military installations where these birds are breeding, a lot of these birds are migratory. And as soon as they migrate to wherever they're going, I don't know what they're doing. I don't know where they're going. Are, they, are those forests that they're heading to, are they being clear cut? Are they using pesticides that we don't use here in the States? We could be breeding all these birds and doing a great job here, but as soon as they migrate, they could be doomed. 
So what this Partners in Flight program, and especially the DOD Partners in Flight is doing, is trying to help facilitate partnerships with some of these other agencies and organizations and countries in other parts of the world where these birds are going so that we can have a full spectrum conservation program to manage for these, for these species throughout their whole life history so we can keep them going. The Partners in Amphibian and Reptile Conservation is a relatively new program, but it's real. It's got two gentlemen who are really dynamic leaders that are managing that program, and they're they're getting a lot of traction and actually learning a lot about what reptiles and amphibians are on these installations where we didn't have a lot of that information in the past. <clears throat> One of the things that obviously is a, is something that's a, a great concern and people are paying a lot of attention to it is sea level sea level rise. At Naval Weapons Station Seal Beach, where we have a two we have a double whammy in that not only is, uh, are we seeing uh, effective sea level rise, but our land is also sinking. We're having subsidence, and that's tectonic. Whether the Newport Inglewood Fault runs kind of diagonally through our installation. So the, the land is sinking, the water's rising, so it, it's, it's a bad combination for us. And so this is, a, this is a, a model that was done in 2010, and what you can see there is in the, the marsh area, which is surrounded in blue, which is the, um, the boundary of the National Wildlife Refuge, which is primarily marsh, you can see that there's some intertidal exchange there. There's greens and yellows. But when we look at the future models, I'll push, I'll push it forward to 2050, you can see that the future is really great if you're a fish, but it's not good if you are a bird that is living in the intertidal regime and depends on pickleweed and cordgrass. So what do I do as a military biologist when I'm you know, I'm supposed to be looking at the whole ecosystem. So one of the things that we're doing is we're trying to look at some of this edge habitat and can we make some transition habitat that instead of having these hard bathtub edges on our marsh, can we grade it out so that as the water comes up, that habitat can kind of move in with it and the birds can move along with it. Again, great, great future for fish, but not so much for these birds unless we take some, take some actions. And then, and these are, these are all based on models. I mean, I don't know what this is really going to look like, but these are what the models are telling us. But I'll fast forward another 50 years and you can see what we're really dealing with here is you can see how much that water is increasing and, and moving up even into leisure world. Now, a, a lot of this is assuming that there aren't levees in place and there aren't, there aren't um, actions that are taken. This is just purely, if we didn't do anything else, this is where the water could, could go. You could see Old Town Seal Beach would not be happy, neither would most of the leisure world residents. So um, these are some of the challenges that we're looking at and trying to figure out, okay, how do we, how do, we do that on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, while continuing to make sure that, that the sailors today are doing what they're supposed to be doing and being responsible environmentally, but at the same time keep, keeping one eye over the horizon as to what, what's coming down the pipe. So this is a, one of my favorite quotes from uh, General White, who was, a, um, he was actually in the Air Force, which I don't know... Um, doesn't make sense to me being a Navy guy why there would be a general in the Air Force. But, um, but this, is, this is what I have on my wall and reminds me of, of what, what, it, what my role is as a, as a military biologist. And, and there's a final shot of our uh, last release. We do some captive propagation of light-footed Ridgeways rails and, then, and release them. And so that's one of our big releases to help augment the population. And um, I'd like to thank a couple people. Um, thank you for, for friends and family that came here today. Um, I, have to, I have a special thank you um, to my wife, who today is her birthday. And so, yeah, it's like, oh my gosh. 
thank you for your support, sweetie. All right. Um, yeah, when I told her that I had this great opportunity to speak at the aquarium, she said, great. I said, yeah, it's, it's on July 18th. She looks at me and says, you know what day that is? I said, yeah, I do. I do. So I appreciate your support. I appreciate that. Um, so at this point, I, I, I'd also like to, I'd like to thank Jerry. Um, thanks for hosting. And it's been a wonderful experience. It's been something that's been on my bucket list forever. I applied for a job here many years ago and didn't get it. But uh, um, but uh, you know it's 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 worked out well and obviously things are working great for the aquarium so I appreciate your your hosting me and uh, at this point I'd I'd like to open it up for a few questions if anybody has any so thank you very much thank you thank you. Thank you.